Welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine. Uh, I'm Peter Simpson, joined as ever by Jamie Dunn. Hello. And Anahit Berries. Hey. It's very cold today. We're in a different room than normal. We couldn't work out how the lights worked. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, so yeah, we've got a lot to get through today. We are going to be talking about the Batman. Pause. Um, <laughs> dramatic pause. Dramatic pause. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about the new Batman film, we're going to be talking about Red Rocket, Sean Baker's new film, we're going to be talking about superheroes and men in general. <laughs> For our sins. Yeah. <laughs> we will see how this goes. Yeah. We'll give it a bash, if the cold doesn't take us before then. Making us sound like we're Antarctic explorers, like somebody just left the window open, and now we're just grumbling and sitting around. And, and it'll just heat up. Fear- yeah. It'll heat up with the fury of our hot takes. Exactly. <laughs> or hopefully just because the window is shut. <laughs> so yeah, so that's what we've got to get through today. But just a few bits of housekeeping before we get going. Glasgow Film Festival kicks off tonight as we're recording. So as you're listening, it has already kicked off. But if you want to get up to speed on it and find some films to go and see, uh, listen to the last episode of the podcast in your feed. We have recommended many, many films, some of which are not yet sold out. So... If you want to try and see something at GFF, which runs for the next week and a half or so, yeah. get on there. But what's everyone been watching? Jamie, we'll what talk, have you been watching? I'm talking about GFF. I'm uh, deep in watching mode. And uh, yesterday I watched A Cracker, uh, My Old School, um, which is this really kind of interesting, lively, fun, comic tragic documentary about a man in his 30s who managed to worm his way into studying at Beersden Academy and basically almost got away with it if it wasn't for those darn kids. <laughs> so it's like, it's a really fun film. It's like really nicely put together. The animation is great. There's pop music we through it. But what makes it so good actually is it's the director's Jojo McLeod who went to school with this guy and basically just assembled all his old classmates and it's like a, almost a reunion where they reminisce about how this weird kid turned up from Canada and how he basically changed all their lives a little bit. It's, it's really, really fun movie. Um, and despite the fact the guy is a compulsive liar, he does seem to have changed people's lives a little bit. So it's 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 jaw dropping. It's bittersweet. I would urge you not to uh, watch too much, uh, read too much about it, and just go in because it's great fun. And uh, yeah, so it's sold out on the third and fourth, but they have added an extra screening on the thirteenth, so you can still see it at GFF if you fancy it. Good stuff. Thirteenth of March. Yeah. yeah. Cool stuff. Anahit, what have you been watching? Um, I have also been quite deep in the GFF kind of press screeners, but I haven't actually been through to Glasgow yet, so I've been doing the online ones, which are like the smaller films. Uh, I watched Aha! The movie (laughs) (laughs) yesterday, Um, mostly just because I know nothing about this band or this music, but Take On Me is like one of my favourite songs, because I just think it's like really sexy and it's really sweet, and I know I really like it. Um, So I watched like a two-hour documentary about these people. Did you know they're Norwegian? Yes. Yes. Oh, I did not know this. Like, it started, they started speaking Norwegian, and I was like, but aren't you American? It was very, like, I know nothing about music, and it was like one of those moments. Um, But, like, the documentary itself is quite sweet. It's quite middle of the road. Like, it doesn't really do anything new with the formula. But, like, the vibes are immaculate. Like, there's all this archive footage of them in the 80s, like, these kids with their little, like, tucked-in T-shirts and the hair. Um, And it's just, like, really nice. They do, like, yeah, a section on kind of how Take On Me became a thing, how The Living Daylights became a thing. Those are the only two songs I care about. It was nice. It was good. What about Sunshine on TV? That's the best I have song. 
Yeah, I hadn't heard that before yesterday. <laughs> and then I heard it. It was fine, but it wasn't it wasn't take on me. Yeah, I used to think it was about how the sun shone on the TV and it was annoying, but actually t- TV's the meant to this world, so like I only realised that later. <laughs> how later? Uh, what, like two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, I watched that, which is like nice. I think if you're really into music, you're into the 80s, it's like a nice time. Um, and then I also watched Asteroid, which is an Iranian film, um, which like centers on, it's very short, I will say. Um, so it's like a really good one to kind of squeeze in. I think it's less than an hour and a half. Um, and it's about like a very a small family of, I think there are like six, seven kids and the mum, and they live in um, sort of the Iranian countryside. They're very poor and they're mostly supported by this little 12 year old boy. Um, it's very quotidian, it's very gentle, it's very perceptive. Um, yeah, like a real slice of life. Nothing really happens. It's very meandering in parts, but it is so short that like it doesn't really matter. Um, and just, yeah, like this kind of joy that comes out of like these very small and often very difficult situations. Um, yeah, it's a very beautiful one. Um, so yeah, I would I would recommend both of them, I think. I mostly recommend Aha because the boys were just like really nice. <laughs> just nice boys. <laughs> What's it called? Morven... Something was the what's the league called? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you started now. <laughs> it does begin with M, um, but I couldn't tell you, Morgan, even though I watched Morgan, it yesterday. Sort of. It's like Morta, Morta. Yeah, and he still looks super handsome. He like he looks yeah, like he he's, he's aging like a fine wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They look, they look really good. And they don't really like each other anymore that much. But it was really interesting because the way they do it's not like this huge feud. They were just kind of like, yeah, we were never, it was never about like friendship. It was just, it was about the music. I don't know. It was kind of nice. That's, just, that's so scandy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Morton Hackett. There we go. Yeah, that was yeah. close. Yeah. So, Aha the Movie and Asteroid. Yes. GFF. GFF, yes. I don't know when sometime Glasgow it's on the Glasgow Film Festival website there we go there we go uh, I haven't watched anything else from GFF but I did rewatch Best in Show which I am adamant is one of the best films one of the best comedies ever ever if you haven't seen it it's a mockumentary about a group of odd people trying to show their dogs in a kind of prestigious dog exhibition a la Crufts uh, Eugene Levy Catherine O'Hara Parker Posey Jane Lynch Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, Bob Balaban, all in it, all extremely deadpan. There's ventriloquism, there's freakouts, there's a guy who has two left feet, there's lots of very cute dogs. It's a very good film. That sounds great. That's That's such a good cast. Oh, yeah. He has literal two left feet. Yes. Yes. Oh, oh, I see. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a bit of that as well. (laughs) But yeah, so that's what I've been watching. I haven't been doing any... I haven't been doing any work. I've just been, <laughs> it's been watching a 20-year-old film about dogs. As is your right. Yeah. And with that, we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, me and Jamie went and saw The Batman on Monday, and he was in the Lake District, so didn't come and see it. But now I get to have you guys explain The Batman to me, yeah. which... We're going to mansplain Batman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a perfect situation. So this is the new kind of rebooted, latest reboot of Mr. Batman. Starts off with the violent murder of the mayor of Gotham City with an accompanying note from the Riddler 
and this kind of starts this violent string of events and the revelation of a shadowy decades-long conspiracy at the heart of government and society which the cops, the Batman and the Catwoman have to try and resolve over the course of what I would describe as a uh, lengthy bordering on punishing runtime. <laughs> How long is that? It's three hours. Oh, it's two hours, half. 58 minutes. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> it's a big, it's a big boy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure to have a pee before it starts. Yeah, it's, it's a long one. Because the other thing about it, and we'll get into it properly in a second, is it's very, very full. It is a bit like watching a whole TV series in one go, not just for the length, but because it's very stuffed full of plot and new things constantly happening. I would, yeah, Jamie's right, go for a pee before it starts because you might struggle to find a break in the action <laughs> as uh, famous character actors from stage and screen are being introduced left and right almost constantly throughout the three-hour runtime. But anyway, Jamie, Batman, what do you think? Well, I'll start with the good stuff. I actually loved the cast. I thought Robert Patterson made a very fine Batman. You know, he's menacing, he's brooding, he's got the ridiculous gravelly voice that Christian Bale introduced in the Chris, uh, Christopher Nolan films. He's got, you know, he's, he's got a good physical presence. Um, so he's kind of a classic Batman in that way. He doesn't really change Batman that much, I think. But what's most interesting, I think, is his take on Bruce Wayne. So, like, people like Michael Keaton and Christian Bale, they've played him as a kind of shallow playboy because that's the best way to conceal his identity. But Patterson basically goes the opposite route and turns him into this kind of really kind of emo sad boy <laughs> who can't even bring himself to pretend he's a rich playboy you know he's just murderable and you know the first thing we see him as bruce he's got these kind of big panda eyes because that's the makeup he wears as batman and he's it's streaking down his face and he basically looks like robert smith you know he looks he's 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 got jet black hair he's a little emo kid there's a lot of nirvana on the soundtrack you know this is a this isn't the emo batman and I kind of like that contrast, you know, like between this kind of vengeful icon and this kind of little sad kid who's just kind of sad about his dad dying and sort of lurking, lurking around his uh, mansion. And I thought Paul Dano was like pleasantly unhinged as Riddler. We've seen him do this kind of stuff before. He's the, he plays this kind of whiny child incel Riddler, which is quite an, an interesting take. It's completely different from Jim Carrey. You know, he's no, he doesn't wear green spandex or anything like that. Um, he but, dresses kind of like if you were trying to do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cosplay, but you only had like twenty quid and a bunch of like green tarpaulin. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all very kind of lived in, and and, and that's the thing is, like they almost never mention. I don't think they say the word Batman in the whole film. They don't say the word Catwoman. Riddler, I think they only say towards the end. So it's like. It's, it's as if they don't want to admit this is a comic book movie, really. It's, it's, mm. that, there's a kind of tension where it kind of wants to be a more kind of serious type film. But I think one of the big flaws is Paul Dano is not on screen enough. Like, um, you know, Riddler is the, is the main antagonist, but the way this pro plot is structured, it's really more a detective movie. So it's it's actually much more about Batman trying to find out what the Riddler's up to. So there's not really much confrontation. In fact, they only share a space, like, once in the whole movie. So it's like, it seems like a kind of big gulf. So what happens is, Peter says... To fill that gulf, they bring in all these other actors, you know, so every, you know, people didn't even know was in the, in the film, like Peter Skarsgård appears as a, as a kind of character and he's got quite a big part, um, you know, we have uh, Colin Farrell under a lot of makeup as the Penguin, so, so there's a lot of kind of uh, padding, I think, to fill that big gap, because really the antagonist and the protagonist don't really meet in the film. But I thought, I thought that, like, like I say, Colin Farrell was quite interesting, he plays a kind of gangster, style penguin, a kind of Al Capone 
who kind of runs this nightclub called the Iceberg. I thought the brightest spark in the whole film was Zoe, uh, uh, Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman, who is actually funny and cool. I think the film is a little bit po-faced. I don't know if you would agree, Peter. But I thought she kind of brought a bit of lightness to it. She's a bit more uh, down-to-earth, I think, and having a bit of fun with it, whereas everybody else is super serious. But ultimately, I think the film doesn't really have much focus. I think there is a great detective movie in there, but it's just so baggy. And I think another problem is Matt Reeves is a director who doesn't really have a strong identity. You know, there's a you know I've seen most of his films, and he tends to sort of work with other people's properties. So he makes remakes. He made, you know he did the Planet of the Eight movies. He did the remake of Let the Right One In. And I feel like he, he's a very solid pair of hands, but he never really kind of puts his own stamp on things. So while I was watching Batman, I was just constantly reminded of better movies. You know, so the Riddler plot. Uh, as Peter pointed out straight after the screening it's basically Zodiac you know it's, it reminded me of like a David Fincher film um, it, there's a sub subplot about police corruption and sort of mayoral, mayoral corruption and that's kind of like a Sydney Lumet movie from the 70s so I was thinking of those um, you know there's a voiceover which makes Batman a bit like Travis Bickle who wants to clean the streets he's this kind of it so it's like it was just constantly reminding me of other films um, so I was a bit disappointed it wasn't kind of more of its own beast um, Peter, I don't know what you... It's very technically proficient. I think when you spend this amount of money on a film these days, you get a director who is... You get, by and large, unless you go and get Zack Snyder, um, you get a director who is quite kind of proficient. You get an extremely good cast. Like, we've got John Turturro's in it, uh, Zoe Kravitz, Robert Pattinson, Jeffrey Wright's very good. And then just, like, every time you turn around, there's somebody who you recognise from either a piece of prestige telly or a kind of, uh, like, big indie film just turning up and having, like, five lines. But one of the things about it is that those five lines are all just pulled straight from, like, the big book of noir film tropes and one-liners. And sometimes it goes a bit awry. There's a point where the, the penguin played by Colin Farrell... <laughs> tells somebody when they threaten him that he's he pulls out a gun and says I'll spray paint your ass which is one of those lines where you're like I don't know what vibe that is all I know is it's not what you meant it to be there is this thing that it's just taking a lot of other films and a lot of ideas and kind of putting almost like a kind of Batman reskin on them I feel when I'm saying that there's maybe a slightly uncharitable way of putting it but that is basically what it is because the other thing I said to Jamie straight after the screening is like this film is basically just seven moralistic murderer leading detectives on a chase around a grey, rainy, decrepit city. It's just that this time one of the detectives going around is in a bat costume. I think it's got quite an effective visual style, but it's somebody else's visual style. You know, it's the visual style of another film that we've already seen. And when I was talking to some like superhero comic book movie fans about this, one of them said, "Oh, the thing about Seven is Seven was always talked about by Batman fans as the best Batman film that had been made up till that point. So this person was telling me that basically, like, the Batman is kind of a take on the plot of Seven, but that Batman fans always saw Seven as a take on the plot of Batman. Oh, that's so interesting. Overall, I enjoyed it, but it does raise a lot of questions and doesn't always necessarily have the answers to it. I think if you're looking for like thematic consistency and if you're looking for a kind of like left-wing for the people taking a film about the Batman, I might be looking in the wrong place. But it does try to tackle these ideas of Batman being kind of coming from a lot of material wealth and success and it has some 
you know, luck with doing that. I mean, at the very least, it brings it up and it makes it like an active thing. And the Zoe Kravitz Catwoman character is really good because she basically represents what Batman would be like if he had come from a less well-off background. Because her kind of motivation to really become involved in the plot is that one of her friends, who's just like a regular kind of civilian off the street, has been kind of embroiled in all this massive corruption in like government and policing so she's motivated much more by like a direct um involvement in all this stuff whereas as jimmy said robert pattinson is just literally lurking in the shadows and then and then just battering people just battering people and that's the other thing like the action is very well like choreographed and it feels very physical and it doesn't have the kind of like it's not Tesla Batman like the Christian Bale one is. Like the Batmobile kind of looks like a piece of shit. The Bat costume doesn't until quite late on doesn't have all the kind of like crazy bits of like tech and all the kind of Batman technology feels more kind of like homemade and less like shiny. But it always has this issue that it's basically a film about revenge and using vengeance as your kind of like driving force and what the limits of that are and what the usefulness of that is and what that kind of does to people and how that makes them behave but it never gets to a point where it says that that's bad and you shouldn't do it there are moments where it just sort of says like oh batman do you think just being motivated by sheer you know bloody-minded revenge and visceral rage might actually be causing problems and he just goes, nah, I'm sure it's fine. And then the <laughs> plot just moves on. I mean, I should say, I think this is a cut above a Marvel film. Like, I think one thing is Batman is an interesting character because he's just a man in a costume. So mm. he's vulnerable. He's not like a god who can be beat around and, like, jump back up. He, he is, like, battle-scarred. And that's kind of a big thing about it. Um, but, yeah, I, I thought this is... I, I agree, it's overstuffed, it's too long. But I came up on the side of, actually, I kind of prefer this type of movie which is actually trying to say something and i agree they don't say everything fully or in a very coherent way but i did sort of find myself moved at some of it like i actually did almost shed a tear then because i should i, I don't want to spoil anything but i should say maybe the most heroic thing batman does is not punch a bad guy or not uh uses batmobile but he just helps someone out and it's like and it's like almost like oh maybe maybe that's uh the message it's like yeah you don't need to go about kicking people's heads in to be like a hero you know like and i thought that was kind of a, it's a bit of a cheesy message but i you know I, I i can fall for that kind of sentimental garbage sometimes and i kind of <laughs> i kind of like that so yeah there's things to like this film for sure where would you place it in uh the batman canon well i mean i enjoy the fun batman or batmans how do you say it batman. Bats, Batman, Batman, Batman. Batman. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I, I, I really enjoy the t- the Tim Burton ones. You know, like Batman Returns. You know, with with Danny DeVito as Penguin and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. That's to me is the, the fun Batman. That's what I grew up with. I guess I am not a big fan of the Doer, uh, Christian Bale series. I guess what this reminded me about is like the cartoon. This is a bit more like the cartoon where it's about a detective. It's a bit more close to the ground. There is a kind of some spectacular action, but it's more about the detective work, which I kind of yeah. liked. Um, so I would say it's it's above the Nolans, but not as fun as mm. the Burtons. And it's definitely better than the Zack Snyder garbage. So. 
One thing I did want to bring up, which I just thought was hilarious, and I don't know why. So Riddler, he does this murder, and then he creates this situation where he's going to send all this incriminating information but he just uses everyone's info at email addresses, which I don't know why I was laughing so much when it starts popping up on the computer screen. It's like, oh no, it's going straight out to everyone. It's going to reception at <laughs> gothamtimes.com. Oh no. What? You're, you're That's just, just going to bounce right back. <laughs> yeah. If you, send, if you send it to the news at the skinny, no one will read it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and one other thing is that... Uh, Friend of the podcast, Scary Barrykeen, enters the chat, re-enters the chat in a surprising really? way, which I do not want to say any more about. Oh, that's exciting. But I'm sure if you Google Scary Barrykeen, <laughs> it'll probably tell you what's happened. Yeah, that was a lovely surprise. Yeah. Lovely surprise and really strange, because me and you afterwards were both just like, couldn't work out if we had just missed them. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah, because he's in the credits, but you really, yeah, you work out what, why he's in the credits uh, afterwards, if that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> this is all, like, very intriguing. <laughs> I'll write it down. Oh! <laughs> yep, <there you> go. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible podcasting, but very interesting for me. <laughs> no, no spoils here. <laughs> Except for all that stuff we spoiled earlier, but it's fine. Okay, so that was The Batman. And then the other film we've been watching, I didn't see this one, but you two did. In grand cine skinny tradition. Yeah. <laughs> the tradition we've just started, let's not all watch the films, um, is Red Rocket. Jamie, do you want to talk us through what Red Rocket is? So uh, this is the new film from Sean Baker, who made The Brilliant Tangerine and Florida Project. He's just one of the most interesting American indie directors working, I think. Uh, so this one follows an ageing porn actor named Mickey Saber, who's down on his luck and has returned from Hollywood to his small hometown in Texas, where he has clearly burned a lot of bridges. So we follow this kind of incorrigible hustler as he slowly worms his way back into the lives of the people he's left behind, while also plotting a comeback to the porn industry off the back of this 16-year-old girl he meets and seduces and basically grooms for stardom. It's all very troubling and spiky, and yeah. Uh, Anne, what did you make of it? I really like this. I thought it had an incredible energy to it. Um, so it begins with um, like NSYNC's Bye Bye Bye, like, like booming in the background, <laughs> and that kind of interweaves through the whole film. Um, and I found Florida Project quite a static film. I didn't really love it in the way that a lot of other people did. But this one moves so quickly. It just, yeah, it has this incredible momentum. I think it really keeps pace with, like, the hustle of Mikey's character, that he is constantly, he's constantly on the make. And the film is just, like, follow him, following him with that same, like, frenetic energy. And I just found that so, yeah, like, seductive. Like, you just completely fall into it. Simon Rex is so charming oh my god <laughs> like he's so charming even though he is quite literally the worst man on the planet the things he does are awful and it reminded me a little of um like knives out which uh if you haven't seen knives out maybe I skip like, a tiny little bit um but every time i watched knives out i watched it like three or four times in cinema and every single time i was like 
I don't know, like, we're wrong about Chris Evans' character, because I just thought he was so, like, charming and charismatic, and that scene of them in the bar, I was like, oh, maybe he's wrong, <laughs> maybe, like, you know, it's okay, and then obviously every time he's the murderer, because that's how films work, <laughs> and I found this kind of the same, in that you know that you're being manipulated, but it feels so easy to fall for it. Yeah, like, it's this real case study in the space and the grace that we got that we grant to men um, and how this kind of like toxic masculinity plays out and it often plays out because we are, we've been taught to kind of find it charismatic. We've been taught to kind of, yeah, find it appealing. Um, And I thought it did a really good job of playing with that idea, like playing with the male gaze, playing with, like it wasn't trying to distance itself from it, but in doing that, like you're kind of part of it. I saw a review, I think it was maybe even just on Letterboxd, that said it was like the least sexy film about sex. And I kind of disagree. I thought it was sexy. And I think that is the point. I think that we're meant to kind of be, we're meant to be made complicit in kind of watching what he's doing to get this girl called Strawberry who works at like the donut hole and is just like this little innocent but thinks that she's not she thinks that she's an adult and she thinks that she's grown up um and I think like the scenes between them they often do play out in this very like um yeah there's like chemistry and there's heat and there's like a lot of sex scenes between them and I think we're meant to be kind of drawn into that and you're meant to then like question your own role in viewing this and in, you know, seeing this horrible, horrible scene of what he's doing to his girl. And then scenes later, he's just being charming with another person and you kind of forget. And I thought, yeah, that kind of back and forth of it and that whiplash was really like meticulously constructed. And I think kind of unlike much else that we'd seen before, I think obviously you have films like Lolita, but they have like quite, um, like stark line of what you're meant to find acceptable and what you're not whereas this it yeah it plays so much with your expectations um yeah I really liked it I really liked it I wish um yeah more that like Simon Rex was getting more of his due because I think he really carries it like I don't know many other people who could do that back and forth so well what did you think Jamie yeah I mean I guess because I was saying before that Matt Reeves doesn't have much of a visual sensibility. I think Sean Baker has such an immediately definable sensibility that's, you know, it's just this is that from the first scene, this is a Sean Baker film, you know, so he loves to shoot everything in this kind of super bright sunshine mm. and he's got an amazing eye for framing and finding these kind of magic visuals in these kind of rundown corners of America. So he really loves kind of garish architecture and sort of kitsch Americana and pastel colours and like the donut shop for example is like totally that it's like kitsch it's beautiful but it's also crummy as well it's, you know and he loves donut shops as well the big donut shops lots of donut scenes uh, sh- shop scenes in tangerine so he's got something to do with this kind of strip mall aesthetic that he loves and he also can he's also interested in films about sex workers that's running through his films as well you know sort of so tangerine uh, starlet and the Ford project all have sort of sex workers either as a central characters or kind of in the fringes um, and he also likes to invite people from this world into the film. So Simon Rex, uh, you know, has a lot in common with Mikey. He started off in porn when he when yeah. he first went to Hollywood. So like, and that's why that's why I kind of think it's a great performance. But I wonder how much is it just great casting because, you know, he has that same kind of hustler uh, background. You know, he understands what it's like to have not much 
going for him, but he's going to use his body or his charm and everything to get ahead. So he tried out porn uh, when he first went there. He was a rapper for a while. He has been a DJ. He was a kind of uh, presenter on MTV. And then he was like quite good in the kind of uh, scary movie films. I don't know if you saw like a uh, scary movie three and four. He's quite a good comic actor. Um, but this is like, he's just so much... This is the kind of star making role, you know. He's like he's he's just so good at this kind of character who is so seductive, who is so charming. But yeah, like you say, he's he's just the worst. And I I think that is the genius of the film. I, I totally agree. I think the way, um, you know, you know when you when you watch him seduce this young girl, right? It's super uncomfortable. Um, you know, this like you say, strawberry. She's not quite an innocent, but she is like just seventeen. She's like she doesn't quite realize what this guy. It's about because he's such a good liar. He's he's such a he's just he's a braggart. He's completely manipulating her. Um, but I think what's great is Baker does the same thing with us. Like you say, like Simon Rex's performance is about seducing us. Uh, you, you can't take your eyes off him. You can't help but smile when he's doing these terrible things. He's just such a rascal, you know. He absolutely has no morals. Um, he'll do whatever it takes to get ahead, and he'll step on everyone and drop anyone. And it doesn't. It takes a while for the penny to drop, and realize this guy is absolutely toxic. We should not be smiling at what he's doing. It's it's awful, and it's, it's it just shows you how like there are people like this who who are sort of great at worming their way into situations. But he's, he's there's nothing to matter about him. He's a coward. He's a user. Um, but yeah, he's he's a fascinating character. It's also interesting that the film sort of has in his background um, the twenty sixteen election, and I think he's clearly sort of trying to say something about. You know, so 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 we hear Trump's voice constantly in the background. Nobody really addresses it. Nobody really says anything about politics, but it's on the background. You know, like all these kind of rallies, and he's obviously trying to say something about drawing some sort of comparison between Mickey's um, or Mickey's behavior and Trump, who are you know they're both charlatans, they're both braggarts. They will both do absolutely anything to get ahead. And like Trump, uh, Mickey seems to be a clown. You know, he seems to be sort of. Uh, harmless in a way but he's a very dangerous clown and you know he'll cause destruction wherever he goes what you know what he does to some people in this movie is awful um and when the ship hits the fan he'll leave again and go on the bus the greyhound bus to another destination like trump does so it's yeah it's a really interesting movie that's saying a lot about america and i love how like i love how sean baker can make a film like about gritty hard subjects but make it fun yeah. make it pop, make it visually interesting. And I think a lot of filmmakers can learn a lot from that, where they want to say something about um, maybe sort of a world that's not sort of uh, shiny and, and clean and gritty. And But what they do to do that is they shoot it in this kind of gritty, unappealing style. And, and Sean Baker goes a completely other way. He kind of finds beauty and charm in it. But at the same time, he sort of shows you what's really here as well. So, yeah, I think he's a great filmmaker. I think this is a really interesting film. And uh, yeah, very fun to watch, but also incredibly troubling. And sort of yeah, the the later comparisons are are interesting as well because yeah, is is it, yeah, there's a lot going on. And, uh, there is a lot going on, and it's a lot yeah, it's a lot funnier than his previous films, and very deliberately so. But I think it is also a lot darker. But I think you're absolutely right. He is, I think, one of the most interesting documenters of American modernity that we have because he is looking at the margins a lot of the time. And especially I think all of his films, or almost all of his films have 
kind of looked at um, sex workers and like various sort of their lives or various interactions that they have. Um, and yeah, like the tendency when we think about these things is to think about it in this very, either in a very gritty way or in a very tragic way. Like there's a real kind of patronizing streak that we can have when we're trying to talk about these issues and these lives and these experiences. I think that he's finding beauty and charm, but I think it's also just how he shoots and his aesthetic and he's not going to sacrifice that for some sort of like easily palatable what we understand that we understand these stories as tragic and therefore we have to see them as tragic and I think that that is yeah really fascinating because we don't really think about like yeah the margins of American society these things that often aren't documented um they're not really given space and they're not really given like space to be experimental and to be aesthetically interesting yeah and it doesn't feel like he's patronising them either. Sometimes when people go and make films uh, in the kind of these kind of corners of America, which are kind of very deprived, you know, and, and sort of people, you know, people are getting into these situations out of desperation, really, um, and you know, a lot of drug addiction. It's kind of there's a kind of um, outsider's eye, but it feels like he is kind of really embedded with them. The fact that he casts people uh, from these backgrounds or, or sort of works with them a lot, you know, like um, you know is why it feels so integrated. It doesn't feel at all patronising. And actually, well, this this actually has a troubling look at uh, the porn industry, but usually he's not sort of judgmental in any way. Like, usually he just says, this is work, some people have to do it, mm. um, and, and he, he just sort of sh- sh- uh, shoots it in quite sort of unjudgmental ways, so you can make your, up your own mind. And I kind of like that. He sort of, he's a very kind of humanistic filmmaker in that way. Mm. He doesn't sort of patronise, he's, he's sort of, he, he just sort of, gets in amongst it and sort of finds out what's going on. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah, and even this isn't necessarily judgmental of the porn industry. It is very much a character study of this particular kind of man. Yeah, I think, again, yeah, you're right. It would have just been so easy to become easy to become judgmental. Um, and I think we, as an audience, would have found that a much easier ride to go along with. And it's nice being faced with a film that is so prickly that you're never quite sure of where you stand in it the whole time. Yeah, I really liked it. I really, really liked it. Well, I really, really liked Tangerine. Extremely underrated Christmas film. <laughs> uh, and really liked The Florida Project. So I'm going to have to try and check it out. Yes. You've sold me on it. Good job. <laughs> yeah, so it's on this Sunday and Monday at Glasgow Film Festival. And then it's out everywhere on the 11th of March. Go and see it. It's very good. So I've heard. <laughs> so... We've talked about Batman. We've talked about a film about a unpleasant ma- uh, masculine character traipsing through the American economy. Probably quite nice to talk generally about superhero movies and what we love about them and what we hate about them and how they kind of fit in to everything else that goes on in film because I think on this podcast we talked a lot about like little arty films and a lovely documentary about um homespun Ugandan action movie studio but Jamie as you pointed out to us the other day superhero films don't necessarily fit into the film industry they're almost like a kind of superstructure around which everybody else has to operate totally yeah, sometimes with superhero movies, I feel a bit like Al Pacino in The Godfather Part 3, you know? 
I thought I was out, but they pulled me back in. <laughs> so like, I really thought after Eternals and you know these awful Disney TV things, which are terrible, I thought maybe the superheroes might be on the last legs, you know. But then, of course, Spider Man comes along and breaks all these box office records, and the Batman's coming out and everybody's super excited. So clearly, they're going to hang around for a while. And I guess my only beef with these films is basically just how much they dominate the public consciousness and the debate about film. You know, I don't really want to hear journalists asking Martin Scorsese or Paul Thomas Anderson what they think about superhero movies. You know, I just don't. Because if they say anything mildly against these films, you have five days of discourse with all these kind of Marvel nuts slagging off these directors and saying they don't understand the nuance of these brilliant movies. And, you know, enjoy these movies all you want. But, you know, they're fu- they are fun and I like some of them. But, you know, some of them are also terrible. And I think because some Marvel fans and DC fans have drunk the Kool-Aid, they kind of want everyone else to join in. And I feel that's kind of where it rubs me out the wrong way. Because these are not the modern equivalent of The Godfather or The Searchers or even Star Wars, as, as far as I'm concerned. They're kind of factory product, which are designed to make Disney and Warners a lot of, sh- a lot of money, right? And if they turn out to be good sometimes, that is completely by accident, you know, pretty much. So I don't want Jimmy Kimmel saying they should win the Oscar, because these, these to me, aren't the best films um, of the year. And, like I said, they're fun, sometimes well-made, but, yeah, I, I just don't understand the mentality of these Marvel fans who have kind of won the war. They, they, they dominate the world. They, they dominate the box office, they make all this money. Why do they also want the critical success? I feel like they're the popular kids who also want to be best best boy and sort of be in the, the, the theatre and stuff like that. Why can they not just have the popularity? Why do they have to have everything, you know? Like, uh, so that, that's just, that's that's me. They just, just make me angry how much they dominate the conversation. And, we, and the fact we're talking about them now, like, mm. these are just kids' movies that should be fun. Why why do we have to talk about them like they're, they're sort of serious, you know? Yeah, pizza. Yeah. <laughs> but anywho... Isn't it the case that if a film makes lots of money, it must be good? <laughs> yeah, so I've had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree kind of with Jamie um, in a podcast first. Um, I think they are, I think the monopoly of it is really troubling. And I think they're entangled with some of the worst aspects of like rampant capitalism in Hollywood. I think this kind of reaction that has been coming like especially in the last few years of people being like oh but they are like discourse right like the whole fucking discourse I think it comes from like this place of tension because comic books themselves are pulp like they're cheaply produced they're widely available and they often were quite underground and I think they were quite subversive for their time and so the comic book as a genre that does make sense and they were like thought about as like for kids, they were thought about for, you know, there was like a whole class thing I think often that came with them. Um, but the thing is that discourse and that sort of reaction or like cultural understanding of them has been carried through to these films that are not that, like they're not pulp, they're not cheaply produced. And the genre has now transformed into something that's very lucrative. But this cultural idea of it as something that's neglected has lingered. And I think that's like where the tension of it comes from. And I think like there needs to come a point because superhero films are now so dominant that we separate them from the comic book, that these are two generically very different things and they are operating in a very different levels. 
Um, I really like a lot of them. I will say, like, I've seen every MCU. I think the DCEU is bad, but, like, on a technical level. I just think it's boring and shit. But, like, I have seen every MCU film, like, usually on opening weekend. Like, I really, really like them. I'm one of the few people that actually genuinely thought Eternals was good. <laughs> I'll hold up my hands and say it. Um, and I think that the MCU... has re re Damn, you caught me. <laughs> Um, I think when the MCU started, it felt fresh because the Monopoly didn't exist yet and therefore it was doing something quite interesting. Um, And each of the MCU films in particular, I think, are still good. And by that, I mean that they're pleasant. They are very, like, pleasing, but they feel very formulaic. They're very structured on this idea of like audience dopamine. Mm. And that does make them, you know, they're well constructed for that and they're very easy to watch and they are fun and they are, yeah, that they're like good. They're, I don't think they're like badly made films. It feels like sugar, right? Like there's no nutritional value to it because you are just based on what will the audience enjoy. And I don't think that is good. Like comparing it actually to uh, Red Rocket, like that is something that does challenge you. It is something that pushes back and it uses the cinematic medium to make you sometimes feel uncomfortable and to make you have an experience that otherwise you're not probably going to have. Whereas, yeah, Marvel films, they are easy. They like slip down easy. Um, And I think like what turned me off of them or not maybe, you know, like I said, I still do watch them, I do still enjoy them, but that made me feel very, like, suspicious of the whole thing was, I think, after Endgame, Disney announced, like, put out its production schedule for the next 10 years, and it was just this list of, like, untitled Marvel project number whatever, like, through to kind of 2030, and I was like, oh, okay, these aren't films, these are products. Like, this is what they have become. Like, it doesn't matter what will fill that spot as long as a film that is a Marvel film that has, like, a particular intellectual property that people feel comfortable with, that they can release that and people can engage with that. And I find that really troubling because I think cinema is an art form. Like, it is an interesting medium. And I think it can do, superhero films can do something really interesting with it. But if you're at a point where you're like, well, we need to release two a year and it doesn't matter what they are. And you're also getting, this is now turning into a rap, sorry. (laughs) But you're kind of dragging in these actors and they're bound to these um, contracts that then means that they can't do other things. And you are just creating a monopoly. And there is no creativity behind it. And film is a creative medium. And I find that, for me, yeah, difficult to sort of, yeah, I I don't think it's going to go anywhere good. I guess. Mm. So there's a number of different things all kind of going on simultaneously. I think the thing about yeah people being kind of tied into lengthy deals where they have to be involved with these films and the thing that Jamie was talking about of them effectively being one of the only shows in town, everyone is involved in a superhero film because those are the films that are getting made. And there's the whole kind of commercial side of things where those are the films that get made and they're also the only films that are often on in a cinema. The week a new Marvel film comes out, you're going to struggle to actually see anything else at like a multiplex cinema because they'll have like 25 screenings of Eternals a day. So then there becomes the thing that if they're all interconnected together, they can't deviate too much from each other. That becomes a sort of blueprint for how they work, but also like a kind of aesthetic and politics to them makes it very difficult to do things in kind of interesting or weird directions. 
and they all seem to have been pulled slightly into that there's like an internal logic to the whole lot of them which then becomes difficult for any no filmmaker is going to be instructed to go out and break whether it's continuity or to you know break the kind of traditions that have been built up over the last like 10-15 years of how these films are supposed to be made and how they're supposed to look um, and how like kind of what their function is so that becomes a bit worrying because then it's just like well they are like you say they're just going to be the next one off the ramp and because they're all kind of tied together and all very kind of intimately connected to each other and very much commercial things you can't ask questions like is it good to be glorifying Iron Man mm. who is just kind of basically military industrialist with his big suits running around blowing the shit out of things I'm thinking about Batman which is obviously not Marvel don't at me um, <laughs> I was thinking about Batman and how like the thing about Batman, the Christian Bale Batman, is it's basically like kind of centrist power fantasy. It's the idea of like a wealthy industrialist who has like fancy kit and can do all the outside the box thinking and breaking the gridlock and being an adult. And it just means that like he just goes off and does bad shit and then nobody can really say anything about it because he like holds some charity balls once every so often. Um, and then the kind of new Batman is more of your kind of like frank miller libertarian batman where it's like the cops are crooks the states fail trust no one beat the piss out of like petty criminals and that will solve all your problems like in the new batman there's a whole thing that it tries to deal with the wealth of bruce wayne but it doesn't want to say like it's bad for somebody to have that much money yeah. it's bad for somebody to have that much control it's bad for somebody to be saying oh i'll just be private police the police have fa like the police have failed, the state has failed, don't worry, I'll beat everyone up. And that's just presented as like something that's fine. But then when you present it as something that's fine in a kind of photorealistic grey... You know, you take that comic book character and put it in the real world, you then introduce all the contradictions and structural problems with the story of that character. You know, you take Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, it's very camp and silly, but it has an internal consistency and it has a logic to it, and it's very cartoonish. You take Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and it gets itself kind of tied up in knots about like what's real and what's not real. Like, if this was a thing in what's very clearly supposed to be a much more realistic world, is that actually a good thing? And it's just like, well, it must be a good thing because the film's called The Amazing Spider-Man. It's not called The Slightly Suspect Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> the highly questionable Spider-Man. Yeah, well, the thing about Batman, I think he is like clearly the Republican superhero you know he uses his wealth to go after street level criminals he never uses his wealth to take out capitalists or to take out fraudsters or to take out evil corrupt governments you know so like he has you know a right-wing wet dream and that's why he's always sort of led that way um I, I totally agree i think the fact they dominate the cinema space i remember going to cinema like multiplexes in early 2000s and you could see all sorts of things you could see foreign movies, you can see weird art house movies, like American Indies were on every screen. And now you're right, it's like if 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 Spider-Man's out, seven out of ten screens are given to Spider-Man. And that's partly to do with how the film industry's going. It's harder to make those smaller films. But part of the reason is these tent pole movies is all the studios are willing to bank on and they have to make billions of pounds. So the only way you can actually do that is by throwing tons of money at it, throwing 
everything, uh, all your advertising at it, and it becomes swamped. It becomes uh, the whole conversation is about these movies. They take it. so it's a it's a monopoly, and it's like I, I'm not sure if the film world will continue to make interesting movies with that kind of system. You know, streaming can replace cinema. And I think that is the big issue. It's like, how can these kind of mid-budget movies, the type of movie that Seven is, like, that's, I mean, before we had a film like Seven, which would be a detective movie, and it'd be great, and it'd make a lot of money. Now, to make a detective, now if Matt Reeves wants to make that type of movie, he has to tag on Batman. And mm. I don't think he'd be wanting to make a Batman film. Like I said, he's almost embarrassed as a Batman film. I think he wants to make a more interesting film about uh, urban environment and a detective but to get it to make that type of scale of movie and to get a lot of people to watch it you have to tag on a superhero and i think that's what's happening to interesting young directors they're all kind of falling into this trap of thinking to to make, have a good career you have to to be in this machine and it's happened to i know you liked our channels but but Chloe Zhao, I really, oh, yeah. think, I really think she failed because she she tried to take her sensibility and, and apply it to this machine and it just did not work for me. And I hope it hasn't hurt her career. I hope she can go on and recover from this and actually go back and make interesting movies. Um, because I don't think it is healthy for anyone, really. I don't think it's healthy for the actors who are stuck making these movies for years. We miss out on all the interesting movies that somebody like Scarlett Johansson or Matt Ruffalo or Chris Evans could be making instead of this nonsense. But also all the directors, they now, you know, as, as soon as somebody makes an interesting movie, they're, they're snapped up by Marvel. They're, they're, they're tagged and you're going to you're gonna work for us now, and but you have to work within our constraints. And it's just not good for cinema. No, I think the Chloe Zhao example is really... So yeah, like I did like Eternals and I did think, I didn't think it was perfect, but I thought she was doing something at least that felt a little bit different and I appreciated that. But I think what concerns me is then... I can't remember if it's rumours or actually confirmed, but I think it was confirmed that she's now linked to a Star Wars um, thing, like God knows what, but a thing, because Star Wars is also doing its whole, like, a new thing every six months. And that I am like, oh, okay, like, Disney now has its claws in you, and you're going to really struggle. And when you think about Chloe Zhao's career before, so much of it is working with non-professional actors. It's so experimental. It's so beautiful. Like, She's inspired by Terence Malick and to then kind of completely become absorbed in this machine, like Eternals was fine, but if that's going to then set a precedent for her whole career, that is something that I find. And I think the system is set up to do that, um, which is really concerning. I think the other thing with Marvel, Marvel superhero stuff broadly is kind of, there is this sort of structural, like, how they're produced, which is really concerning. I think also what they show is often quite troubling. There's something like not very human about them. There was that article, I don't know if you guys saw it, that like went viral a couple of years ago that was like, everyone's hot, but no one's horny. And so it's about like, just yeah, that these films don't have any sex. There is no sexuality. And I actually think this is maybe why I liked Eternals because Barry Kewen just has like a sexual energy that he brings to everything. <laughs> And he has not yet yeah. been, as Jerry said, <laughs> sent off for re-education at the exactly. Disney Content Factory. Exactly. And so, like, it did feel like there was some sort of interpersonal stakes. Um, and I think Marvel has been, like, engaging with ideas of 
collateral damage and what does it mean to kind of you know the violence that we just accept in superhero films it does have very real world consequences but it does it like a very surface level and when you think of then like real world conflicts like obviously everything the really just fucking awful stuff that's happening in Ukraine right now and the reactions to it people treat it like a game like they treat it as if it's content and I really do think there is an extent to which the way that we are like culturally brought up on things like Marvel where violence doesn't really have consequences and that we tend to think of things in quite binary good or bad ways and where yeah like wealthy people I mean we talk about Batman I think Iron Man is also like yeah like the technocrat like (laughs) so much money that's just like focalized and in real life like Iron Man is Elon Musk like that is who he is but in the films he's kind of portrayed in this sort of very charismatic very attractive way but we're setting ourselves up to find that sort of stuff acceptable and then when things happen in the real world I think you can see the residue of how we've been taught to imagine conflict and power Um, and I find that really worrying as well. Yeah because the other thing about looking at it from the perspective of conflict is that the whole thing about any franchise is it's not supposed to end Mm. so then you have this series of films that are about uh, often quite violent conflict but as you say without much visible stakes kind of being done because that's the thing that the characters do but it never fully gets resolved yeah and if that's the predominant thing in the culture that's not gonna have that's gonna encourage people to go on twitter and talk about like NATO doing a no-fly zone over Russia as if that's a as if it's just saying like I'll just phone Captain America and get him to sort it it's like that's not reality but then because these films portray themselves as existing in this kind of facsimile of reality people start to believe that people maybe it's a bit much to say that Marvel will cause World War 3 but it certainly (laughs) might make it more likely than something like a Sean Baker double bill at the GFT yeah Yeah. oh my god that's so true (laughs) (laughs) Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so there's a there's a history of that though. Like, I mean, uh, Captain America and Batman have famously punched Hitler. You know, like comic books have always tried to insert themselves in the real world. But I think, and it's right, they were pulp, and people could see them as pulp. I think the problem is when the real world starts to sneak into um, comic book movies. I find it really distasteful. You know, there's a whole kind of nine eleven analogies and. The Kristen Rowland films, which I, I found really distasteful. Mm-hmm. I, 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 like I, am more sympathetic to these films when they are in the comic book realm. So the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films I enjoy because they are clearly pulp comic book films. I'm in love with the frame, the colours, like the things that are good about. I think are good about comic books. It's like they're, they're kind of fun and exciting. Uh, you know the the Batman uh, Tim Burton Batman films are, are the same. It's like they love the characters, but when it becomes about uh, you know Iron Man fighting the Taliban, I just think this is weird. Oh, you know, like yeah. I I, yeah. I I I just don't think that's what these films should do. Um, so yeah, I I I think I I I'm actually excited because. Sam Raimi is actually coming back to comic books. He's going to be doing the next Marvel films. And this is what I say about, I hate these films, but they also drag me back in. I'm really excited to see what he does with Doctor Strange because he is a director with a really smart visual sensibility uh, who's going to be working in, with Doctor Strange. He's actually a, a, quite a visually interesting uh, superhero. He doesn't just punch people. He, he kind of 
he's, he's all about kind of creating illusions and fantasies and things like that. And so I, I'm interested to see how that works. But I hope if, if they're going to do, if, if super, superhero movies continue, I really wish they would just stick to their lane and be superhero movies and not try and be the films of the day which which talk about politics and talk about um, the world around us because really they're not good enough to do that. They're not like you say they don't go deep deep enough. They're too shallow. They're, they're not interested in asking the, the the trick questions. Leave that to good filmmakers uh, or people who aren't just trying to sell your product and not basically trying to make an advert for your next film because that's what I always feel these com- these films are. They're a film, but they're really an advert for the next film, and they don't really exist on their own, and they can't exist on their own because they're not allowed to because they're all about making money. Um, so yeah, I think what also made the Sam Raimi films work was that they felt very local. And if I think of like the superhero stuff recently that has worked the best, I really liked the first couple of seasons of Daredevil. I thought that was like quite well done. Um, And I think it really is because this man is like fighting around like three streets in New York. (laughs) That's all he's doing. Um, And then Into the Spider-Verse, which is genuinely one of the best films I've made like that is just really fucking good but that is because it leans into the comic sensibility and again it's just a very small story but it is when you start to extrapolate this stuff into kind of global superpowers and international politics and you just think like are you well placed to do this probably not are you just replicating American imperialism yeah, probably. Like, I still can't watch the first Iron Man. I find it really upsetting, just the way that it depicts Middle Eastern people. It is a product of, like, the post-Iraq war age, and not in a good way. No. <laughs> not in any kind of critical anything. It's just replicating the same powers. And at that point, it's like, well, we can just watch politics. <laughs> yeah. Like, we already have this, you know? I don't know. Yeah. They are tricky things. But I, I agree. I also am quite excited for Doctor Strange because I'm a sucker, <laughs> is the thing. Maybe we have drunk the Kool-Aid. Maybe we are. Yeah. <laughs> Look at all these films. What a disgrace. Ooh, Sam Raimi. Yeah. <laughs> I also liked, Jamie, when you said, oh, if these superhero movies continue. If. I mean, of course if. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember years ago I was saying they're going to die out because they start to bring out all the kind of B-movie uh, B-movie? No, not B-movie, B-list superheroes. So you had like your Green Lanterns and your Green Hornets and they felt that they ran out. But as you said, they've just invented this uh, multiverse, which means we're going to have them all back. I thought Iron Man was dead. I'm not going to have to see that bloody guy again. But oh no, they're going to have bring back a Tom Cruise Iron Man, you know, uh, who, who lives in uh, Tobey Maguire's like version of the world or something like that. So it's like, we're going to have these forever. Um and it really got, it's going to take two or three of them to really lose money for them to stop doing it because as soon as, as soon as yeah as soon as they lose money they'll give up because they're not you know they're not really interested in these types of films they're just interested in making cash and they'll find the next cash cow um, but it's you know if, the problem is we keep going along to these films and keep giving them the money and they're going to keep making them so we're to blame really if we can't beat them join them I got three words for you Sean Baker multiverse <laughs> yes <laughs> I'll get them on Twitter. Sean, if you're listening, we've got we've got a project for you. <laughs> All right, so I think that's us for today. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Anahit. Thanks, I think we've Peter. solved some problems. We've we've really fixed the film industrial complex <laughs> yes. with the secret weapon of Sean Baker. He doesn't know yet, but he will. He will one day. 
very soon. Next time, we'll be talking about The Worst Person in the World, speaking of good films. Uh, and we'll also be taking a look ahead at Glasgow Shop Film Festival, which takes place towards the end of the month. So that'd be good. Yes. <laughs> yes. They didn't last three hours. That's great. How many short films could you watch in the time you watched Batman? Probably the whole of... Oh, uh, GSFF's program. Yeah, really. watch full GSFF program challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Gauntlet laid down. Um, yeah, so thanks for listening, for making it this far. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, then tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies. Marvel fanboys oh. don't at us, please. Yeah, or do. Or no, do don't at us. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, thanks for listening. Be sure to tell your friends and leave us a nice review. And uh, send us nice emails at uh, cineskinny at theskinny.co.uk. Um, if you want to follow any of us on Twitter, Jamie's on Jamie Dunn Esquire, Anaheat is on Anaheat Ruse, and I'm on Peter Simpson, all one word, novels. The hardest word to ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't play by the rules the rest of you choose to live by. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's us. We will be back in two weeks. Uh, look out for masked vigilantes in the street. Bye. Bye. Bye.